you would, turn to your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Uh, you can turn over to verse 67, but before we get to that passage, I want to uh, take, a little, uh, take a minute to provide some context, uh, context here. Um, over 2,000 years ago, it came time for a certain division of the priesthood of Israel to come uh, to the temple to perform their priestly duties. Lots were cast, and this was a seemingly random uh, action that was believed to reveal the providential decisions of God. Zechariah, the old man could not believe it. Uh, it was finally his time. After waiting nearly his whole life in ministry, it was finally his time to go and to perform these duties in the temple. You see, only one time a year was this priest allowed to go into the temple to perform these duties. And so Zechariah was an old man now, and he was finally getting his opportunity. Zechariah was married to Elizabeth, and the Bible tells us that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. So Zechariah prepares himself, and he enters into the temple. The rest of the multitude of the people, they're going to wait outside, and they'll be praying while Zechariah is in the temple. Zechariah's duty was to approach the altar of incense, and he would take a very particular incense and he would burn it. And so the smoke from this incense was to represent the prayers of God's people. It would be a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. So then in a frightening flash, an angel appears next to the altar of incense. So Zechariah immediately becomes terrified. He's thinking, what have I done wrong? What have I screwed up? Did I burn the wrong incense? Am I standing in the wrong place? Has God sent this angel to kill me for screwing up the temple rituals? And so the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. His name will be John, and he will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So at that moment, a mixture of delight and confusion swept over Zechariah. Was it true? After all these years, has God decided to answer our prayers? Is God finally going to give us a child? But, but how can this be? Elizabeth and I were both very old. And so Zechariah expresses his doubts to the angel. And so the angel says, Zechariah, my name is Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. So a chill ran down Zechariah's spine as he considered the significance of what the angel said. And Gabriel then informed Zechariah, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. Zechariah soon stumbled out of the temple and he was obviously unable to speak and the people had been waiting for him, wondering what was taking so long. And so they rushed up to him, they're trying to communicate with him and he's making signs and it's clear that he can't speak. And so the people, they take this as Zechariah has seen a vision. So Zechariah completes all his duties, and um, he heads back home. His time at the temple is done. And a few days later, Elizabeth conceived, and she kept herself hidden for five months. Flash forward another four months, and the day comes for Elizabeth to give birth. And just like the angel said, she gives birth to a son. And all the family and neighbors are celebrating, and they want to know the child's name. And they're assuming that the child will be named after his father. But Elizabeth communicates to the community, his name is John. And so the people are obviously confused because of their assumption, and so they go to, 
they go to Zechariah and they ask him about it. They make signs of him. And so he gets a writing tablet and he writes on there, his name is John. And as soon as he writes that, he is able to speak again. And so he immediately begins praising God and all the community, they start losing their minds. What is going on? Who are these crazy people? And all the people are talking about it in the community. What does all this mean? And so we come to our passage this morning where after regaining his voice, Zechariah delivers a prophetic song. So let's read Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 75. And his father, and we're talking about the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is the word of God. Last week, we began a brief sermon series for Advent titled, The Songs of Christmas. And so, uh, we wanted to look look at the group of songs that surround the birth of Christ and consider uh, how they're relevant for us. What do they mean for us? What what does it mean in light of the gospel? And so, we come this morning to the song of Zechariah, which is known as the Benedictus. And it gets its name from that first line in the song. If you were to go and read the book of Malachi... And you read through the whole book, it's a brief book, and you get to the end of the last verse, and if you were to turn the page, what most of you would probably see is a, is a blank page here. And then it would be followed by a mostly blank page that says the New Testament. And so I was thinking about this, it feels strange to be reading through the Bible and to come across this blank page. It just seems so random, out of place. All the other pages of your Bible have so many words on them and usually in a very small font. There's so much going on in the story of the Bible, and then, then you get to this blank page. And so we always just skip over it. We don't give it any consideration. And so what I want to request of you this morning is that from now on, when you come across this blank page, I want you to pause, and for a brief moment, I just want you to, to stare at it and, and look at it. As, as strange as that seems, I want you to consider this blank page. Because when you see this page, it needs to represent a very difficult era for the people of Israel in their history. You see, the nation of Israel has been an oppressed people for much of their history. Ever since the time of their slavery in Egypt, there has been turmoil and a roller coaster ride of stability. When we read Zechariah's song, twice he mentions our enemies. That is because the people of Israel have had many enemies. They have had a lot of enemies. Uh, There were the Egyptians, the Philistines. there There were enemies from within. But throughout all the turmoil, God was constantly speaking through his prophets to the people, constantly keeping communication. Sometimes the communication was stern and harsh as he was communicating his judgment and discipline for how the people had broken the covenant. And other times it was God reminding the people, yes, I am still your God. Yes, I am keeping this covenant. Yes, I will be your God. Yes, I will take care of you. The entire Old Testament is full of God reaffirming his covenant for his people. Um, he says that he will be their God, and he will make them a great and mighty nation. 
and they will be a nation of freedom and prosperity. But then you get to the book of Malachi, read through that book, and you get to that blank page, and what that represents is that God goes silent for 400 years. God does not communicate to the people of Israel for 400 years. 400 years of silence. In this time spent in history, we meet a few more of Israel's enemies. The Persian Empire rises up, and they decree that that all the Israelites who had been scattered all over the place, that they are allowed to come back to their homeland. But for the people of Israel, this is a spark of hope and excitement, but then that's followed by disappointment because they were only allowed to come back to their homeland under the approval of their pagan rulers. And even then, not all of the people returned from exile. So this led the people of Israel to a conclusion. If God had told us about his covenant... Um, And then we're being brought back to our homeland, but yet we are still exiles culturally and religiously, then God must not be done with his covenant promises. There must be still work that he's going to do. World power transfers to the Greeks, and so they invade Jewish culture with pagan Hellenistic culture. And that causes great cultural and religious compromise. World power is transferred again to the Romans, And they rule with much greater force and political constriction over the people of Israel. Governors and kings are set up to rule over the Jews. The Romans even appoint their own choice for the position of high priest. Jewish leaders and authorities, such as tax collectors, they were tainted by Roman influence and corruption. Through all this time, there still remained a people, though, that were faithful to God and and waiting on him to fulfill his promises. And two of those people were Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Now, in Luke chapter 1, we read that Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So you see, the nation of Israel had, had enemies. They had many enemies. But Zechariah and Elizabeth, they too had a very specific enemy. And it was infertility. And they had no child. This was a time and a culture where there were no 401Ks, there were no Roth IRAs. This was Dave Ramsey's nightmare. (laughs) People in this time and this culture, they had to depend on their children to take care of them when they got old and they could no longer care for themselves. There's no nursing homes, there's no assisted living. This is a very family-centric culture that depended on their children. Um, So Zechariah and Elizabeth's enemy was the impending hardship of a future with no children. They would have been viewed with reproach among their people for this, and they could see coming down the pipeline for them just a future of difficulty, a future of hardship. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous and blameless, but they had no child. The people of Israel dwelled in the promised land, but they still waited for Yahweh to make them truly prosperous spiritually and culturally. And there's always a but, isn't there? Um, Joe and Susan have served Christ faithfully in their church and their community for years, but their children are far from the Lord. Adam has shared his faith faith on campus multiple times this semester, He even led a classmate to Christ, but he may not have the money to pay for tuition next semester. 
Amy volunteers faithfully in the community, but she still hasn't found a husband. Harry wanted to go to seminary and, and to serve in ministry, but his girlfriend is pregnant. Stephen has been a dutiful worker at his company for 20 years, but he's always been overlooked by his managers. There's always a but. For some reason, it's always there. There's always a but. There's always something that fosters a deep sadness or a deep fear. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a deep desire that has not been met, or it's an overwhelming obstacle that, that seems inconquerable. We, we can't get past that. For Israel, it is living in their homeland, but they are essentially exiles. And for Zechariah and Elizabeth, it is being childless, though they have served the Lord faithfully for years. So I ask you, what is your but? How do you fill in that blank? What is it that creates deep sorrow or crippling fear? Or, or to use the language that Zechariah used in his song, what are the enemies that haunt you? For the people of Israel, they fear their enemies. They fear the actual people who are literally ruling over them. They long for deliverance and freedom. So almost, almost every day, they are being given significant reminders of the fact that they are being oppressed, that they are under the thumb of their pagan rulers. And the reality of this is only compounded by the silence of God. Their God has been silent for four centuries. After 400 years of silence, the people of Israel are living with a very real sense of fear. God is not going to keep his promises. God is not hearing our prayers. God is not going to come and rescue us from our enemies. And that leads to an emotional and a psychological state of mind that is plagued by fear. We can see that Zechariah is an appropriate representative for the people of Israel. Zechariah and his wife represent that emotional and psychological state because they have feared the future that their enemy has been creating for them, that enemy of infertility. And after all those years of being barren and entering into old age, it appeared like they had received their answer from God. There would be no child. And soon their greatest fear would be their reality. Imagine the thrill that Zechariah must have felt when Gabriel told him, you're going to have a son. God had heard their prayers all along. God had been listening. He's going to keep his promise. As unbelievable as it sounded, God was going to be faithful to his promises. However, when we read this song, this, this song from Zechariah, it is a prophecy that is ultimately meant to attack the fears of the people of Israel. Not only has God triumphed over Zechariah and Elizabeth's enemy, but God was going to triumph over the enemies of Israel, finally and absolutely. We must consider fear, not, not as something that the people of Israel dealt with, but as something that, that we are dealing with on a daily basis. Even for those of us who trust in Christ, even for those of us who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, fear is an absolute reality for us almost on a daily basis. The definition of fear is this, the emotion experienced in the presence or threat of danger or an uneasy state of mind usually over the possibility of an anticipated misfortune or trouble. So in talking about Zechariah's song and addressing the issue of fear, there are three questions that I wanted us to answer. And the first question is this, how does God address our fears? How does God address our fears? So what dangers threaten you? 
What are the misfortunes or trouble that you're anticipating? I want you to imagine what it would be the what it would be like to be a Jew living through those 400 years of silence. Imagine the dangers they were living with. Imagine the misfortune that they were anticipating. They were under the forceful rule of Rome. The Romans had infected their lives and their culture. They had infected their religious practices. They were concerned for the well-being of our loved ones. They were uncertain of the future prosperity of their people. And they were fearful that they would never be truly free in their own homeland. We must always be aware of of the fear that lies below the surface in our lives. The, The fears that are whispering from the corners of our mind. The Bible gives clear commands regarding fear. Do not fear. Do not worry. Do not be anxious. Be strong and courageous. So why are we a fearful people? The answer is that we struggle with a lack of faith. As we consider the emotional and psychological state of the people of Israel uh, during that 400 years of science, it is easy for us to understand why they were fearful. Uh, It makes a lot of sense. We can can definitely uh, understand that. But the root of their fear, we have to admit, was a lack of faith. It was a lack of believing God and believing his promises. So, so now I want you to examine your own heart. Can you see the lack of faith in your fears? Can you see the lack of faith behind those fears? Can you see where you have failed to believe the promises of God? In regards to your fears, your anxieties, your worries. You see, there is a spiritual cancer that has been festering in our hearts ever since the Garden of Eden. If you'll remember the serpent, he came to Eve And he said, did God really say that? Oh, no, you will not die. God just knows that if you eat that fruit, you'll be like him. And so what was planted there in the Garden of Eden has been passed down generation after generation. Is this constant wave of thought in the back of our minds. Is God holding out on me? Does God really want what's best for me? Is God really going to take care of me? Can I really trust God to to care for my family? Maybe when push comes to shove, God does not really care about taking care of me. We struggle with fear and with doubt, with uncertainty and with anxiety. And again, our question is, how does God address our fears? And to answer this question, let's consider Zechariah's prophetic song. Uh, Right off in the first couple of verses, Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And this statement is just magnificent foreshadowing. Because not much long after John is born and Zechariah sings the song, God himself is going to show up and visit his people in the most meaningful, intimate way possible. God is literally going to take on human flesh, become like us, and come live with us. That's the Christmas story. That's what we celebrate. Christmas is a celebration and recognition that God himself has personally and intimately and absolutely visited with us. So that he can ultimately bridge the gap between God and man. And so during Advent season, I love all the hymns that we sing. Um, I really love Hark the Herald Angels Sing for one line during the second verse where it says, Pleased as man with man to dwell. That is the most significant verse of any Christmas song to me. The fact that, that God would take on human flesh, he would come and enter into the human condition, he would come and, and voluntarily take on all the suffering that comes with being human, and he was happy to do it. He was pleased to do it. 
It was pleasing for him to do that. That's amazing to me. That's crazy. But here's how verses 68 and 69 are also perfect foreshadowing. Not only is God visiting, but he's also redeeming. And when he comes to visit and redeem, it will be a final, ultimate, absolute act of redemption. God himself takes on human flesh to live among us in order to fulfill all righteousness. And he will offer himself up as a final sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people. And it will be a final, finished, completed work. So how does God address our fears? He literally walked on our earth, walked among us. He endured the climb up to the cross. And when he was nailed to the cross, he made sure that our fears were nailed up there with him. We may still experience the feeling of fear, but our king has placed all objects of fear beneath his feet. Absolutely. When Jesus was crucified, when he died, and when he was resurrected, he accomplished the impossible. He had taken the mightiest object of our fear, death, and he conquered over it. And if he has conquered death, if he rules over death, then he rules over all fears. Death is the worst. Death is our worst enemy. Death is our worst fear. And if he conquers death, then he has conquered all fears. Um, Jesus, he drags that monster out from under your bed. He stands over and he proclaims, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me, and you have no place here. Jesus proclaims to you, I am God. I am in control. Nothing happens unless I allow it. I will care for you, and I will love you. And the proof of this is when he, in what he was willing to do for you. If he was willing to come and take on the human condition and the suffering that comes with that, and if he was willing to go and endure the agony of the cross, how can we not trust him to rule and reign over our fears? Zephaniah 3.15 says, The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Our gospel is counterintuitive. Um, our gospel is pretty strange when you think about it. Um, in Zechariah's song in verse 69, he proclaims that God has raised up a horn of salvation for his people. That is not a reference to a musical instrument. This horn of salvation is alluded to multiple times in the Old Testament. And every time that it's referenced, it is speaking about God acting, fighting on behalf of his people. This horn is a mighty, deadly weapon. Not an instrument. It is a weapon for putting enemies to death. And so you imagine a baby ox, really cute, great for a petting zoo. Then you imagine that ox grown up and the horns are fully grown. And if that beast gets angry, woe to the man in its path. In Psalm 132, regarding Jerusalem, God said, There I will make a horn sprout for David. And so in a little town called Bethlehem, a little baby is born. And that baby grows up and fulfills his ministry. And he sets his face towards Jerusalem. And there, this mighty horn of salvation will ultimately put his enemies to death. So again, thinking about how counterintuitive the gospel story is. The Messiah, the one who is to be this horn of salvation, this mighty salvation, is is born as, as a baby in a little barn Born in in a manger with hay and straw and farm animals, there's no parade, there's no red carpet, there's no news flash on the evening news. How strange and yet 
how beautiful and poetic. And it's, it's as if God enjoys telling an interesting story. God is the perfect storyteller. And then it comes that when this horn of salvation is ready to deliver his killing blow, he himself is killed. What? How does that work? I don't understand how the hero gets killed. How does that make sense? Um, This is the Messiah. This is the one that was supposed to deliver the people of Israel once and for all. The other day we were doing Advent readings with Crosby and um, we came across one of these Old Testament scriptures that mentions the Messiah. And so we we were trying to explain what that word means to Cros. And it's kind of funny to, you know, always try to explain the Bible to a three-year-old. But, you know, the best that I could come up with, and this is probably because I'm a nerd who still hopes I can become Batman one day. um, The best I could come up with is, buddy, the Messiah is the greatest superhero in the world. He is the one that is going to come and rescue all the people. He's going to save the day. All the people will be at peace. They will have joy. They will be safe. He's going to save the world. And so he, you know, he obviously couldn't put two and two together at that point. But how bizarre is it that we see this magnificent figure in the Old Testament, the Messiah, and, and all the things that he was to accomplish. And then you go and you see him on the cross. He endures the agony of the cross. And it's just so bizarre. He gets nailed to a cross. He gets buried in a tomb. It's ironic in a sense. But it's all the more beautiful to see that by dying, Jesus has rescued his people. By dying, he has put God's plan of ultimate redemption into place. And there can be no resurrection without death. We see that by dying and by being resurrected... Jesus has given death itself a death sentence. He's put death itself on death row. Death will never again have any claim over his people. Through his death and resurrection, resurrection, Jesus is king, and he rules over heaven and earth. And he rules with absolute authority. Therefore, we have nothing to fear. The day that Jesus showed up into our world as a little baby in a manger, that set off a ticking time bomb for evil. So to answer that question, how has God addressed our fears? He has addressed them by providing a horn of salvation for his people. The second question we need to answer is this. How does God act on our behalf? So in the gospel story, we see God addressing our fears. But I think it's relevant that we ponder why. Why has he addressed our fears? When we experience the transforming power of the gospel, what are God's intentions? What does the Lord see as the final plan? What are the end results that he's after? Let's read that passage again in Luke 1. Blessed will be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God's final intentions for us is that we would be a people that would serve him without fear because we have been delivered from our enemies. God's final intentions for us are that we would be a holy and righteous people, that we would be true image bearers of God, that we would truly reflect his character. 
What we must conclude when we read this is that, yes, Jesus is our horn of salvation. God has provided a horn of salvation for our people. But here's what John Piper said about these two verses. God's aim in raising up a horn of salvation is not merely to liberate an oppressed people, but to create a holy and righteous people who live in no fear because they trust him. God has not rescued us merely to set us free. God has not rescued us to place us in a waiting room for our appointment with heaven. God has rescued us with the horn of salvation so that we will be a people who truly reflect his character and who trust him enough to reject fear. God has acted on behalf of his people so that his people can come and boldly participate in the story that he has been writing. We marvel and magnify the Christmas story, and I think that's good. I think that's right. We should do that. But we have to remember that the Christmas story is plugged into a much larger story, a much bigger story. The Christmas story is about God invading our world so that one day, ultimately, he will rescue his people. Christmas is like the stealth mission. It's the story that flies under the radar. By the time Jesus fulfills his ministry and is crucified and resurrected, it is far too late for evil. But Christmas is not only the culmination of God invading our world. Um, It is also the beginning point for our calling to come and be an active participant in God's story. Once that Messiah is born, that is the point where the process of deliverance begins. The Messiah delivers his people, delivers his people from the hands of our enemies, and therefore his people can serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. God clearly had an end goal in acting on behalf of his people. It's clear that he wants to make us a people who are true image bearers, who truly reflect his character who truly do reflect his glory and his goodness to the world around us. But the other reason that God acts on our behalf is because he is a covenant-keeping God. In verse 72, it says, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. He is a God who keeps his promises even when we don't see how or we don't know when he's going to keep them. God has held a covenant of mercy with his people for thousands of years. And as he promised to the people of Israel long ago, he has fulfilled that promise through providing a horn of salvation. Something that our kids have heard in Sunday school in this church is that God always keeps his promises. If you, if you guys are familiar with the Jesus Storybook Bible, how does it describe God's love? God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Even when there are 400 years of silence, God keeps his promises. In spite of the doubt that might fester in our mind when we feel like God is being silent, he is still working out his will in order to establish what he said he would do. He's a God who keeps his promises. He said that he would make us a people who triumph over our enemies. He said that he would rescue us one day once and for all, and he said that he would provide a horn of salvation because he is a God who keeps his promises. So let's move on to the third and final question here. What does God's salvation change in our lives? What does God's salvation change in our lives? So the response to the Christmas story, which is phase one of God's rescue plan, uh, it's phase one of God's plan of attack on evil. Um, And in response to Zechariah's song, this story does call us to respond. 
First, we must address inward fear. We must pray to the Lord and ask him to grant us the wisdom to see the things that we fear, to understand the fear. We need wisdom to diagnose the fears that are in our hearts. We need wisdom to see how those fears are playing out, how we are actually living out of those fears. And then we have to ask that Jesus would come in and surgically address those fears, that Jesus would come in and rip those fears out. The gospel must be applied to the lack of faith that fuels our fears. Secondly, we must address outward fear. This is very much tied to the first. If you do not deal with fears inwardly, then consequently they are going to consistently express themselves outwardly. We are to be a people who engage and initiate to the people in our lives. We are to live with a missional focus. We cannot do that if we are too fearful and protective. This, this really does spill over into the missional focus of our lives. How are we ever going to talk about Jesus with our family and our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers if we are paralyzed by fear? I know it's awkward to maneuver into a spiritual conversation. And awkwardness may be the most clever enemy that, are, that we have that, that builds our fear. But if we are clinging to comfort, which is what awkwardness is really about, it's an attack on our comfort, If we are clinging to comfort and are afraid of losing our comfort, then we can't obey God and we can't invite people to come and see Jesus. Or if we have a fear of being rejected, if we were to share our faith, live out our faith, um, if we are too busy coveting the approval of others, then we are never going to push through the living with boldness. However, if we look to Jesus as our true source of comfort, then we can reject fleeting surface-level comfort. If we look to Jesus as the one who has to give us approval, then we don't need the approval of others. We don't have to be afraid of losing the approval of others. And we have heard and read the scripture where Jesus calls his followers to, to come take up our cross and follow him. And so what that translates to is, come, take up your instrument of death, and follow me. That call that Jesus gives to us is a call that says, come and die. Come and die to yourself. Come and die to the things that offer you lies and fleeting passions. Come and die to the things that weigh you down with fear. Come and live with me. We have to be a people that hold fast to the promises of God. Instead of holding on to the things that can manipulate our emotions and our actions. For example, comfort and approval. Those things absolutely manipulate our emotions and our actions. Um, What's happening at a heart level when we're so concerned with comfort and approval is basically at a heart level we're bowing down at the altar of those things. Jesus is a much better God than comfort. Jesus is a so much more satisfying God than approval. We have to turn to him. We have to align our lives according to his promises, according to his word. Is um, is anybody here a a Les Mis fan? Les Miserables? I want you to raise your hand because I want to know who the good people are in this church. Um, Okay, so my only experience with Les Mis is a musical. Because there's no way I'm reading that book. Um, It's like that thick. Um, so uh, at about midway in the story, um, France 
is on the brink of a revolution. And so there are these young revolutionaries who are kind of planning uh, how to move forward. And so they have a hero that works in the government, General Lamarck. And he's the only government leader that they trust to truly care for the people of France, to care for the poor. And so it comes to pass that General Lamarck, he dies, he passes away. And so what they use that, that his death for, they use it as a catalyst to begin the revolution. And so um, upon his death, they break, in the musical, they break out into song with these lyrics. And no, I'm not going to sing them. Um, listen to this. Do you hear the people sing, singing the song of angry men? It is the music of a people who will not be slaves again. When the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drums, there is a life about to start when tomorrow comes. Um, Everybody that experiences Les Mis, the musical, loves that song. Uh, When they listen to it, there's like a spark of adrenaline that rises up. And I think it's because we want to stand up and fight. We want to stand up and fight for something. Um, And for most of us, yes, we can hear the people sing. We do know that song. Um, In the church, there has to be a movement of believers who refuse to be slaves to fear. We have to sing a song that says we will not be slaves again. You know the scripture in 2 Timothy 1.7. God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. So how do we reject the spirit of fear? Those Les Mis lyrics, uh, they said, the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drums. Look at it this way. Who you are as a believer in Christ, your heart, the essence of your identity, in order for you to reject fear and to refuse to be a slave, um, your heart must be in tune with the promises of God which is the beating of those drums. We have to be a people who listen to the beating of God's gospel promises. And may our lives, our thoughts, and our emotions, our psychology fall in line with those promises. To close out, I, I want to say one thing about John the Baptist, um, because we've talked about his parents, and uh, it's, it just seems really strange that we would ignore such a significant figure of the Bible, and a weird one at that. Um, John was appointed by God to be a trailblazer for Jesus. John prepared the way. That's what was prophesied. John would be the one that would prepare the way for the Lord. Um, He was born to clear a path for Jesus. It was his purpose. Everything John did was anticipating and preparation for the coming Messiah. Now, when John grew up and began his ministry of preparing people for Jesus, it was a ministry of baptism and calling people to repent to prepare for the Lord to come. And so uh, one day, uh, Jesus shows up on the scene, and it's time. It's time for Jesus to begin his ministry. And so when Jesus shows up, John proclaims him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was John's purpose. So after Jesus is baptized, he begins his ministry, and, and, and all those people who were following John and assisting him in his ministry, they start leaving. And they're leaving to go follow Jesus. And in um, John chapter 3, some people come to ask John the Baptist about what's going on. They say, hey, John, you know, all these people that were with you, they're now going to be with Jesus. And they're, in fact, the verse they say is, all are going to him. It was like a flood of people were leaving and migrating towards Jesus. 
And see, we've got to remember John. John. John's a guy that lives on a diet of locusts and honey. We've heard all this. He, you know, John, can I offer you a shirt? No, my camel skin will do just fine. Lives out in the wilderness. John's got nothing. He's got nothing except his ministry. That's all he has to his name, so to speak. And so basically, these people come to say, like, John, this Jesus guy is taking away the only thing that you have. The only thing that you've got any credit to, he's taking away. And so John's response is this. Um, yeah, so what? If they leave me and go follow him, I told you so. I told you that that's what I'm here to do. John paints this really beautiful image. Jesus is the groom, and I'm the best man. I'm just happy to be standing next to the groom. I'm just happy to hear the groom's voice, to see him be happy, to see him be joyful. That's all I'm here for. John's even so crazy to say this, that because Jesus has come and taken away the only thing to his name, John says, therefore, my joy is now complete. That's crazy talk. How many of us can say that? Jesus took everything I have, and so now I'm completely happy. Now I'm completely joyful. What kind of faith does it take to talk like that? But my favorite verse, verse 30, this is the thing that just slams John's point home. Jesus says this in John chapter 3, I'm sorry, John says this in uh, John chapter 3, verse 30. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. There's always a but. The question is, will your but be one that is created out of fear? Or will it be a but that is founded on the joy of knowing and trusting Christ, the horn of salvation that saves you from all your enemies and your fears? Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together this morning. Um, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gracious um, nature of your word. Um, God, I pray that we would be a people who move out of here today um, eager and ready to address our fears, eager and ready to apply the promises of the gospel to our fears. God, you have called us to be a strong and courageous people. We are not to have a spirit of fear. Father, we pray that your spirit would be among us and that, that you would make that true, that we would be a people who reject fear and who serve you without fear and, and who walk in holiness and righteousness, truly reflecting your character. I thank you for this time of worship together. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.